Amen. What wonderful uh, worship music to uh, just kind of prepare our hearts for, for the Word. We are continuing our study through selected psalms, and as you know by now, King David wrote uh, roughly half of the 150 psalms, and we come to another one of uh, his psalms this morning, which is Psalm 37. Uh, very, uh, I think you'll recognize several of the verses in this psalm. We're not going to look at the whole psalm. I'm going to kind of zero in on verses 7 and 8, maybe 9 and 10 a little bit as well. But I'm calling this Surviving the Culture of Now. You've probably heard the phrase, uh, the uh, tyranny of the urgent. Tyranny of the urgent. It was made popular by an author named Charles Hummel before he died back in August 2004. He had been the director of faculty ministries for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and president of Barrington College in Rhode Island. And Hummel was the author of 15 books and Bible studies, but his most famous was a small little booklet that he put out in 1984 that was later expanded into a full-length book, and it was called Tyranny of the Urgent. And it remains one of the best-selling time management books on the market today. It's been reissued and expanded and, and so forth. But, you know, I think these days in the culture in which we live, maybe a, an even bigger issue is the tyranny of the now. The tyranny of the now. With pervasive connectivity and cloud-based data, it's almost impossible to unplug and simply do nothing. I mean, you almost need to climb inside a Faraday cage these days to make sure you're not surrounded by any uh, technology. But because of this constant din of connectivity, it's easy to become overwhelmed by the pressures and stresses of life. The more demands there are on our attention, the more there is to be stressed about. So, You'll notice the slide graphics in this message. I'm going to be using a, uh, uh, kind of geared towards more of a Christian audience because I'm using an iPhone. So you Samsung and Android users out there, you'll have to kind of, kind of uh, catch up. Uh, of course, I've been reminded by more than one uh, Android user that Adam and Eve chose the Apple and look what it did to the rest of us. But um, by the way, somebody said uh, Adam and Eve were the first people not to read the Apple terms and conditions. So uh, maybe there's some truth in that. But it doesn't matter really whether you have an iPhone or a Samsung or something else. Distractions are nothing new. It's always been the case that distractions lead to anxiety and focus leads to peace. King David certainly knew this. He had plenty to distract him from his task of leading God's nation enemies within, enemies without, providing provision for his people. He had personal demons. Uh, remember we talked recently about uh, the sins he committed of murder and adultery. Uh, there were plenty of things that could raise David's blood pressure, plenty for David to obsess about. And in Psalm 37, he reminds us how to survive the distractions of the now and replace them with steadfast confidence in the one, the creator of the universe, who transcends time. So the principles of Psalm 37 have never been more timely. And I reread it again this morning, the whole 
chapter. I hope you'll take the time to read Psalm 36 and 37. 36 kind of is a part one and 37 a part two. But the question is, how can we overcome all of the rings and tweets and beeps and buzzes and chimes and vibrations and notifications and alerts and blinking lights and everything that demands our attention? Obviously, like so many of the Psalms, this one was written around a thousand years before Christ. And as I said, to, to really understand Psalm 37, we've got to go back to Psalm 36, which was also written by David. Psalm 36 was a lament psalm, and it expresses David's uh, trouble and distress and sorrow over some issue that he was facing, and he's asking for divine help. In Psalm 36, David addresses the wickedness of evil people, and he pleads with God to intervene and help him. And we don't know specifically about what that enemy that he was facing was or who they might have been, but we certainly know enough about David's life story to fill in some blanks and speculate. But he describes wicked people at the beginning of Psalm 36 as those who there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's a pretty good description. In Psalm 37, then, where we're looking this morning, he advances the thought of Psalm 36, and Psalm 37 is a wisdom psalm, and boy, is it packed with timeless truths of wisdom. It emphasizes themes like right living and the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And in Psalm 37, David urges the righteous believers not to let the apparent good fortune of the wicked how the wicked go unpunished, upset us, but to continue to trust in God's ultimate justice, and here's the key, to wait on His timing. It's the same theme that is addressed in Psalms 49, which were, Psalm 49, which was written by the sons of Korah, and Psalm 73, written by the Psalm, uh, by, by Asaph. And if I could summarize the theme of this Psalm, it would be this, trust in God, and let him take care of the injustices of life. Waiting. Waiting is hard. It's hard. Thomas Henry Huxley, a 19th century patriarch of the famous British Huxley dynasty, he was a devoted disciple of Darwin, often called Darwin's bulldog. He was a teacher, an author, a traveling lecturer, and also a self-avowed anti-Christian humanist. His grandsons include Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, and his brother Julian Huxley, also an evolutionist and the first director of UNESCO. There's an interesting story about Thomas Henry Huxley. Having finished another series of public assaults against several Christian truths, Huxley was in a hurry the following morning to catch his train to the next city. So he jumped in a horse-drawn taxi uh, out front of his hotel and settled back with his eyes closed to rest for a few minutes en route to the train station. He assumed the driver had been told the destination by the hotel doorman. So all he said when he got in himself was, Hurry, I'm late. Drive fast. Well, the horses lurched forward and galloped across Dublin at a vigorous pace. Before long, Huxley opened his eyes and glanced out the window and realized they were going west, away from the sun and away from the train station, not toward it. Opposite direction they needed to be going. 
So he leaned forward and shouted, Do you know where you're going? Well, without looking back, the driver yelled, No, sir, but we're going there fast. <laughs> I think that's a great illustration of the pace of life these days. We're not always sure where we're going. Boy, we're always in a hurry. Amen? Who has time to wait, right? I mean, let's go. Let's move. I mean, why wait, right? Well, waiting does have some benefits, and I think Psalm 37 outlines a few of those. And I'm going to zero in on verses 7 and 8, although I'll cross-reference a few of the other verses in this great uh, chapter of uh, chapter 37. But I think there are five benefits that we can learn from David for waiting on the Lord. Five benefits of waiting on the Lord. When you're waiting, you have time to think. You're not so much in a reactionary mode, but a, a contemplative mode. The first thing is it returns our focus to the Lord. Waiting on the Lord returns our focus to the Lord. It, it gives us a chance to redirect our focus away from what's distracting us and toward the Lord. So verse 37 begins, the first phrase, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. That word rest is the Hebrew word demam. And I can remember when I was in seminary the first time having to memorize vocabulary words in Greek and Hebrew. And I always came up with these uh, mnemonic devices to help me remember certain words. And I still remember for demam, I, in my mind, I thought to myself, demam and dad. And that's how I remembered demam. And it meant to be quiet, you know. The mom is usually quiet. The dad is usually not quiet, I guess. I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, the mom means to be quiet, to be motionless. And, um, you know, we, we look at these original words sometimes because they help us really understand the full sense. The Bible wasn't written in English. And let's look at a couple of other places this word is used. It's only used 19 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. But, for example, in... Leviticus 10, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. He was quiet. He was still. Or Psalm 62, also written by David, My soul, wait silently for God alone. That's Damam. Be quiet. Be motionless. My expectation is... Uh, from him. And in Jeremiah, we see the word demam used of God. O sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Put yourself up into your scabbard. Rest and be still. See, Jeremiah is speaking to God here, and this is one of Jeremiah's prophecies against Gentile nations, specifically the Philistines, 600 years before Christ. And Jeremiah called on the Lord to sheath his sword and stop slaying. Prophet didn't relish the prospect of such actions on the part of Yahweh. He wanted God to be quiet and stop pouring out his wrath. I think we have an opposite problem today. Another Psalm of David here we see in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined my, his ear to me and heard my cry. David knew that in his silence God could speak. He knew that his focus could land on the Lord only when he stripped away the noisy distractions that were weighing down on him. In verses 4 and 5 of, of Psalm 37, probably the two most famous verses in this psalm, I bet every one of you have 
heard of this, even if you may not have known it was from Psalm 37. But David says a little bit earlier than where we're focusing. He says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. When our focus is on the Lord, it, it makes our, our troubles and our fleshly desires seem insignificant by comparison. So waiting on the Lord returns our focus uh, to the Lord. And then secondly, it also reminds us of our hope in the Lord. Notice the next phrase. It reminds us of our hope in the Lord. He says, wait patiently for Him. Wait patiently for Him. Well, if you're waiting patiently, you're waiting for something. What are we waiting for? We're waiting on our hope in the Lord. We're waiting on the good things that God has promised us to come to pass. Again, if you go back to Psalm 62, uh, my expectation is from Him. When we're quiet and we wait silently on the Lord, it reminds us of what we're expecting from Him. When we're so distracted by the busyness of life, we might even forget the promises of God. Can you imagine uh, such a thing? Psalm 27, another Davidic psalm, one of my favorite uh, passages in the Old Testament. I memorized this many years ago. I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord reminds us of our hope in the Lord. We see this in the New Testament as well when Paul said, for example, to the Philippians, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. And because of that, with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So it reminds us of our hope in the Lord. And David, having just really uh, complained about and lamented the fact that his enemies were gaining the upper hand, or so it seemed from our perspective, needed that reminder. But waiting on the Lord has a third benefit, and that is it reassures us of our protection from the Lord. It reassures us of our protection from the Lord. So he goes on and says, Do not fret because of the ones who prosper in their way. Do not fret. See, God is fully able to deliver us from any danger or harm that our enemy might be planning. And when we stop long enough to wait and listen to the Lord, we recognize that really our enemies have nothing on God. Do not fret. I love the old King James Version rendering here. Anybody remember what it was? Fret not. Fret not. Fret not. Kind of sounds like a, a character from Lord of the Rings or something. I don't know. <laughs> Fret not, right? Fret not. This is actually a key word in this psalm. In fact, uh, the very first verse starts out with this word, fretting. Verse 1 says, do not fret because of evildoers. It's coming right out of, verse of Psalm 36 where David says, look at all these evildoers. What are you going to do about them, God? And then he writes in Psalm 37, do not fret. And this word is used twice in verses 7 and 8 where we're focusing this morning. It's really the primary message 
of David's psalm. And it's really the primary takeaway for all of us today. Fret not. Do not fret. Uh, the word fret here is the word hurrah. Hurrah. And it's, it's kind of ironic, the pronunciation in Hebrew, because in English when we say hurrah, it's usually something that we are rejoicing about or cheering about or happy about, but not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, hurrah means to be angry. Literally, it means to burn with anger, to be hot, to be inflamed. It's used 93 times in the Hebrew, Hebrew text. And here David is saying, do not burn with anger. Do not be hot. Do not be inflamed. It's, it's really a, a, a fascinating word picture because, you know, when we're angry, our face gets hot. Our blood boils. We get hot under the collar. All of those phrases. Our blood pressure goes up, right? And David is saying, simmer down. Don't fret. Don't burn with anger. Let God be God. It'll be okay. There's no reason to expend energy getting angry at your enemies. Because God will take care of them. Do not fret because of evildoers. Jeremiah wrote, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The word salvation there does not mean our personal salvation from the penalty of sin and eternal life, gaining eternal life. Salvation, both in the Old and New Testaments alike, just means deliverance from some danger or harm or whatever it might be. In fact, in the New Testament, it might interest you to know that 58% of the time the Greek word save, the verb is used, it has nothing to do with eternal life, heaven, or hell. Sick, rescue from sickness or danger or harm, something like that. That's the way Jeremiah is using it here. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, and if we wait quietly, He will deliver us from whatever struggle or problem we're facing. So, Waiting on the Lord returns our focus to the Lord, reminds us of our hope in the Lord. It reassures us of our protection from the Lord. But it also relieves our fear of disappointment with the Lord. It relieves our fear of disappointment with the Lord. You ever been disappointed at God? One of the best books I ever read, I can't vouch for the overall theology of the author, but I read it uh, 30 years ago, and it was called Disappointment with God, and it was essentially a walk through the book of Job. And man, it really touched my life, because it, it reminded me that, yeah, we are disappointed with God sometimes, but we've got to work our way through that. We can't camp out there. That's what happens to so many people who become shipwrecked on the sidelines of Christianity. Some crisis or tragedy or bitter event happens, and they and they shake their fist at God. They become disappointed because they have a false understanding of the way God operates. And they give up. I talk about this in one of the chapters of uh, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. Uh, but when we wait on the Lord, instead of making snap decisions, it relieves our fear of disappointment with the Lord. So if you go back to verse 7, the next phrase is, Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. The man who prospers in his way. See, anger is almost always rooted in unmet expectations. That's almost always the root of anger. So when we see evil people going unpunished, 
it bothers us. It, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what we were expecting. We're expecting God to come in and strike them with a lightning bolt, right? We want justice in our hearts. We crave for justice. We have this mistaken understanding that because God is just, everything in this fallen world will always be just. And what we forget is that the world as it exists today is not the world God created. God created the world in perfection. And He created us, mankind, in His image. We messed it all up. We tarnished it with sin when we rebelled against God. And so the world is under the curse of sin. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5 tells us. The devil is the god of this age. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And it's not an equitable world. And what this psalm is reminding us of, and one of the beautiful things I, I love about Psalm 37, is that it does remind us of that very thing, that it won't always be this way. But we've got to wait. We've got to wait. But we get angry uh, when we feel that God is not keeping His side of the bargain. Uh, ultimately, our fears... Uh, and anxiety all come down to a fear that God is going to let us down. When we focus on our desires, on our expectations, then our mind begins to wander and we begin to think, what if this happens? What if this happens? It really, it's, it's basically a lack of trust. In Psalm 37, one verse after the other is just reminding us that we, we need not be disappointed with God because He's not done yet. There is justice coming. It reminds me of Job uh, 21. And let me give you the context here. Job is answering one of his friends, and with friends like Job's, who needs enemies, right? But uh, Zophar was the friend here, and Zophar was saying what a lot of us, if we're honest, think. And Zophar was saying that God brings judgment and punishment on the wicked, and he blesses the righteous, so Job, if, if you're suffering, then you must have done something to deserve it. And Job answers so far by pointing out how often the utterly wicked do, in fact, go unpunished. It's a fact of life, this side of eternity. In other words, suffering is not a simple matter of do good, get good, do bad, get bad. God is not a retributive God first and foremost. He's a God of grace. And Job is saying, look at all the evil people who get off scot-free. So Job asked the same question that is on all of our minds. Why? Why, Lord? Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Why don't you intervene and punish them? Yeah, why do they live and become mighty in power? Why are the Luciferians ruling and running the world today? Why are they sacrificing children with all kinds of horrific satanic ritual abuse? Why? When we wait on the Lord and trust in Him, it relieves our fear of disappointment with Him because we look beyond the present inequities to a future day of justice. Let me just read, Job says it far better than I can. Let me just read, just listen 
to the, the broader context here in Job 21. I'll start with verse 7. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Talking about the bloodlines of the Illuminati. <laughs> I mean, the, Satan has his people that seem to go on generation after generation without being, without any consequence. He says, their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. God, we want you to strike them down. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. I mean, when we look at all the wickedness in the world, this could have been written today. Why are the worst of the worst highlighted and given all the publicity and the fame and the money? And why is that who the media is showcasing? And why are their children dancing when the godly righteous many times are suffering from hunger and famine? He says, they sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and then in a moment go down to the grave. In other words, they live their whole lives until death and don't seem to be punished for what they're doing. They say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we have if we pray to Him? Can you relate to Job? I sure can. And that's why Psalm 37 is so powerful and poignant today. Because if you look at verses 9 and 10, the very next two verses in David's psalm, he says, For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait in the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That's you and me. For yet a little while. You can almost sense David saying, Come on, Lord, I'm hanging on. Yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Man, can't you wait for that day? Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. And waiting on the Lord helps us gain some perspective about our disappointment with him. It relieves that fear of, of disappointment. And someday Christ is going to come back. Hopefully in our day, it's looking more and more that way. We don't know, but boy, the stage is sure being set. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And then all hell literally is going to break loose on earth in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the great day of the Lord's wrath unfolds for seven years. The Antichrist takes the throne, demands that the world worship him, requires everyone to take the mark of the beast to buy or sell, beheads anyone who believes in Christ. And then after that horrific seven-year tribulation, Christ comes back in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And this time when he comes, he won't be crowned with thorns. He'll be crowned with a diadem. He'll take the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He'll rule with a rod of iron, that same rod that David was saying, can you strike the evildoers with that rod? He'll do it. And, and it's going to be a time of unprecedented peace and justice and righteousness as slowly the Bible begins to come full circle from the pre-fall perfection of Eden to once again a recreated new heavens and new earth in perfect peace and justice. And waiting on the Lord 
gives us a time in the midst of all of the, and I'm not making light of the inequities of this life. And we've got people, no doubt, in a crowd this size here that are facing unspeakable pain and sorrow and hurt, things that are just not fair. Or you faced it and you're still struggling with it. And I'm not making light of that at all, but what I'm saying is that when we wait on the Lord, and get rid of all the, the clutter and the clatter, then we can really begin to look beyond the here and the now, and we can look forward to that day, that a better day is coming. And then finally, waiting on the Lord reconnects us with the peace of the Lord. It reconnects us with the peace of the Lord. In verse 8, we read, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. And again, that word, do not fret. Do not get angry. See, anger and peace cannot coexist. Peace requires a calm and steady heart rate. Anger increases our heart rate and our blood pressure. When we wait on the Lord, it reconnects us with the peace that we desperately desire it's hard to find peace in a world like what we're living in now and it's hard to find peace in david's day with what he was facing but when we wait on the lord it, it reconnects us with that peace i mentioned psalm 73 the psalm of asaph asaph understood the peace that comes from trusting in god's vengeance i love psalm 73 you should read it this afternoon if you have time it illustrates the progression in Asaph's mind from anger, distraction, and stress to total and complete trust in God. See, we want justice and equity right now. You know, that's, the, that's the reason whenever you see these protests about people protesting some injustice, you know, what do they chant? We want justice, and then the ringleader says, and then everybody says, we want justice. When do we want it? When do we want it? Now. Now. So that's when we want it. We want things to be made right, right now. And when things don't work out as expected, we get discouraged. We get stressed and angry. But if we're going to survive the culture of now, we've got to learn to look beyond the now and look to God as our source of strength. And that's what Asaph says. He says, when I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. I mean, that is so beautiful. He, the sanctuary of God in David's day and in Asaph's day was the temple. And when he was away from God, distracted from God, he just couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense. But he got alone with God, in his case in the sanctuary, and then he understood their end. And then he was able to have peace. He goes on, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. When's the last time you said that to God? Whom have I in heaven but you? Asaph goes on, It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. He understood the peace that comes from trusting in God's vengeance. And we see this, this principle of patience elsewhere. In Proverbs, for example, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding. 
So waiting on the Lord, being patient, it, it has all kinds of benefits. Proverbs says, it's, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Now, I know we can't just you know, wiggle our nose and pretend not to be bothered by all of the evil that's going on in the world today. But we can work on having a calm, confident, faithful spirit before God and knowing that God's going to take care of all this. So there you have it. Five benefits of waiting on the Lord. It returns our focus to the Lord. It reminds us of our hope in the Lord. It reassures us of our protection from the Lord. It relieves our fear of disappointment with the Lord, and it reconnects us with that peace that passes understanding from the Lord. So take a breath. Unplug. Wait on the Lord. What's the takeaway? Well, there is an urgency in the air. It's not necessarily what Charles Hummel was talking about in terms of being good business practices and focusing on what really matters and those types of things, but there is an urgency in the air. Things are, are changing rapidly. And if you're like me, you feel a heaviness about what might be coming and how we're supposed to prepare for it. And, and let me tell you, there's enough tyranny already in this world. We do not need to be controlled by the tyranny of the urgent or the tyranny of the now. We need to take a breath and wait on the Lord. Get our eyes off of the distractions of now and rest in Him. So here's just some thoughts as a takeaway. Number one, don't dwell on the digital. I think I've mentioned before that sometimes I have to take just time away from looking at all of the research and the stories and the things that, that are, are, are happening in the world. And it's important to stay in touch with that. You know, Proverbs also tells us we're supposed to be prepared and be aware uh, and so that requires you to kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. But boy, it can be so heavy that sometimes I just have to set that aside and then come back to it after I've been refreshed in, in the Lord. Uh, look up every now and then. Look up every now and then. And if you can see behind all the geoengineering and chemtrailing and solar radiation management, you'll see there is a God. And you'll know that... Uh, that he's got this. He's got this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for just, uh, just your word. Lord, how it ministered to me this week and was just a great reminder of that you are in control and that things are not always as they appear, both from a positive perspective and a negative perspective. So, Lord, teach us to wait. Teach us to wait patiently for you. And in those quiet moments of waiting, help us to be reconnected with your goodness, with your grace, with your word, that we might be strengthened in the faith and learn to trust you in good times and bad. And Lord, we do pray if there's one here today that has never made that initial step of faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins, I pray that today they would make that decision, trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation. So that then, having the permanent indwelling of the Spirit and becoming a child of God in that instant, they can then begin 
to look at all of the evils of life through the lens of your plan and your word and find that same peace uh, that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.